welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and today is episode 89, Supplemental Vitamin D and Incident Fractures in Midlife and Older Adults. This was published in July of 2022 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it is my favorite type of trial. It is the kind of trial that tests something that I've always thought was probably worthless and shows that it was, in fact, worthless. Let's talk about it. So this is about vitamin D supplementation. There's some pretty crazy statistics about bone health in America. You know, in this paper, they say 54 million Americans have osteoporosis. That's incredible. And 2 million osteoporotic fractures occur annually. That's horrible. These fractures are very, very, they're very hard on patients. I mean, this is a big problem. And, you know, we do a lot to try and fix it. You know, we're always, as rheumatologists, trying to start people appropriately on osteoporosis medications. And something that we do is supplement vitamin D. In this paper, it said that 20% of U.S. adults, up to 20% of U.S. adults, are on vitamin D supplementation. That's incredible. One in five people is taking vitamin D. Now, you know, this is in part because the institution of medicine has had these dietary recommendations and allowances and everyone's trying to get there, but it's also because doctors spend an incredible amount of time recommending vitamin D and calcium supplementation to their patients. And I think this time is almost all wasted breath. So, In 2021, the USPSTF kind of agreed with me. They said that they didn't see any effect of supplemental vitamin D on fracture incidents. But there's been some open questions, and we thankfully have this large randomized controlled trial, VITAL, from which we can evaluate it. Now, VITAL was actually looking into the use of vitamin D for primary prevention of cancer or cardiovascular disease. It basically completely failed in those areas as well. But as part of that study, they did a number of sort of ancillary sub-studies to investigate some other questions. I mean, if you're going to randomize 26,000 people to an intervention, you might as well get some bang for your buck, right? So in this study, they looked at the effect of supplemental vitamin D compared with placebo on incident fractures in 25,871 people. That is really incredible. Now, the problem with this study is that it wasn't really assessing this in a super rigorous fashion. They did have annual questionnaires to ask about adherence and things. And one of the things they asked about was, did you have a fracture? So this was weird in the sense that it was a, a randomized trial, but the adjudication of this important outcome was done essentially by questionnaires and uh, self-report. Now, if you self-report a fracture, the investigators would try to track it down. They go grab your medical record. They try and get images and stuff, and they try to have it adjudicated by a group that didn't know whether or not you were in the placebo or the treatment group. So, you know, they tried to do a rigorous job of assessing this ancillary endpoint, but it's worth noting that this was kind of a patient report in- introduction to that. They looked at um, the primary endpoint, which was first incident total, non-vertebral, or hip fracture. Now, I think this is a reasonable primary endpoint. I mean, hip fractures are the ones that we care about a lot. And so that's the one that I think should be the outcome of all of these trials. But total fractures is important. Non-vertebral fractures is important. So reasonable, reasonable endpoints. They had some secondary endpoints as well. Now, I'm typically quite skeptical of secondary endpoints, period. And secondary endpoints of an ancillary study from another randomized controlled trial, <laughs> I'm especially skeptical of. But, I mean, this is a huge trial, and they had a ton of power. So I'm actually kind of interested in these secondary endpoints uh, to a degree that I wouldn't usually be. Now, the statistics are actually somewhat interesting. I want to talk about them, a couple things that they did. So the first thing that they did is they they tried to ensure balance by comparing baseline characteristics. Uh, Now, I'm always skeptical of this. You know, in randomized controlled trials, it's kind of become convention to not report whether or not baseline characteristics are statistically significant or not. I mean, you're testing a bunch of them, repeating these tests over a bunch of variables. It doesn't, you'd expect every once in a while for one to 
be non-random. So I, I don't know how useful that is. But what they did do, which was useful, is that they used Cox proportional hazards models to um, adjust for a bunch of things that could matter. You know, variable follow-up links, you know, uh, different treatment exposures, because some people got also fatty acids, um, age, sex, race, et cetera. So I, I think that's reasonable and useful. Uh, they also looked at treatment modification by um, some subgroups that they pre-specified, which I love. Pre-specifying your analysis makes it stronger because it prevents you from fishing. The pre-specified subgroups were sex, race, ethnic group, BMI, um, baseline use of calcium or vitamin D, baseline serum total, um, and trial group. So really kind of cool. I mean, all that makes a ton of sense. And it was a, a pretty big rigorous approach to this. Who got into this trial? Well, they looked like the vital participants, right? Because it's the same people. Patients were evenly divided between male and female. The average age was 67 years. So they're kind of in the age bracket where we start to think about this. 71% were white, but 20% were black, which I think is, um, you know, better representation than we often see in trials of this nature. And this is also a group where we often see lower vitamin D levels, and we often are more likely to kind of uh, recommend supplementation. Uh, BMI was uh, 28, which is, you know, average average American size. Uh, about 15% people had diabetes. 15% had a history of fracture in their, in their family. Now, interestingly, 5% or so were on osteoporosis medications at baseline, but 10% had a history of fragility fracture. That's somewhat dissonant. You would imagine that anyone who had a history of fragility fracture would be on osteoporotic medications, but perhaps not. And, and interestingly, and this is a big limitation of the study, 43% of patients were on baseline vitamin D supplementation. Okay, why are they on baseline vitamin D supplementation? Because we do this a lot here. I think that's a crazy number. Um, and, you know, this is a randomized controlled trial, so they would have been taken off of that. But a, a big a critique of this is that, you know, we'd already supplemented 40% of people coming into the trial, so they weren't deficient on entry. Maybe if they hadn't already been doing this practice, maybe it would have been worse, I guess. But 60% of people weren't taking it, and 60% of 25,000 is still a very large number of patients. What did they see in that large number of patients? Well, they saw a lot of fractures. 2,133 patients reported a fracture, and 1,991, or 93%, were adjudicated, which is pretty good. It's certainly plausible that patient self-report was an issue here, but again, this was a randomized trial. It was placebo-controlled, so I, it's hard for me to paint a very convincing picture there. All right, so we have a lot of fractures. Did we see a difference? The answer is no. With regard to total hip fractures, the hazard ratio was 0.98, the confidence interval of 0.89 to 1.08. Non-vertebral, hazard ratio of 0.97, and the hip fractures, the ones that I care the most about. There are 57 in the vitamin D group, 56 in the placebo group. It was dead even with a hazard ratio of 1.01, confidence intervals 0.7 to 1.47. In short, this did not work. Supplementing vitamin D in this trial was, provided no benefit to reduce fractures. They had a number of secondary endpoints, a bunch of other types of fractures. There's no benefit across the board. All of the hazard ratios hugged 1.0. If you recall, they did all that interesting uh, substratification to see if there's effect modification from age, sex, race, ethnic group, BMI, use of calcium, vitamin D, etc. And there was no benefit or differences in that group. No matter how you sliced and diced this data, there was no difference. They also calculated ha hazard ratios for total fractures in these subgroups. So age, greater or less than 67, male, female, etc., there's just no difference. None of them were different in any significant fashion or in any way that would make you think that prescribing this medication was useful. I remember I said that 40-some percent of patients came into this trial on vitamin D supplementation, and a good critique is to say, hey, we'd already supplemented their vitamin D, and so you know, if we hadn't done that, maybe they would have done poorly. Ah, 
Don't buy it. So if you look at the subgroups in the supplemental appendix table S3, you will see the people who had baseline vitamin D levels of under 20 nanograms per milliliter had no difference. Hazard ratio 1.16, confidence intervals 0.78 to 1.73. Uh, it was about the same as you went up the scale to having tons and tons of vitamin D, which obviously didn't help you either. So what's the take home message here? The take home message here to me is that supplementing vitamin D in your patients is probably a big waste of time. If you have someone who is profoundly vitamin D uh, deficient, so say they're under 12 nanograms per milliliter or some very low number, um, you know, and that, that, that wasn't that many people here. It was less than 5% of the trial. So maybe there's some benefit there that we're not realizing, and this trial was just looking at people who are too healthy. I guess I'd buy that. I know some patients also want to be taking vitamin D, or they want to be taking Centrum Silver. That's great. I will let them continue taking that. I am certainly not going to go around willy-nilly stopping people's multivitamins. But the flip side here is that there is a cost to this, and I think the cost is substantial. I have fellows present patients to me all the time who are on high doses of corticosteroids, and they say, but we put them on calcium and vitamin D. That but is doing a lot of work, because I don't think the calcium or vitamin D is doing any work. The truth is that being on corticosteroids is a huge risk factor for osteoporotic fractures, and the tiny incremental benefit of adding vitamin D and calcium provides a false sense of security. The fact that your patient with on 40 milligrams of prednisone who has GCA and is three months into therapy is on vitamin D and calcium is not reassuring. You should have put them on Actemra and tapered their steroids. The fact that your myositis patient three months into therapy is on 40 milligrams of prednisone and vitamin D and calcium is not reassuring. You should be tapering their steroids and putting them on IVIG. The contrast to this trial, which required 26,000 people and couldn't find a single zilch bit of benefit, Compare that to the podcast I did four weeks ago, uh, looking at dermatomyositis. Effect size of 35% in absolute terms. You need to treat three people to bring about some reduction in dermatomyositis or some improvement in dermatomyositis. That's what we should be spending our time doing, is making sure that our patients are getting therapies that help them and making sure that we're tapering steroids when we can, because that is where your best return on investment is as far as it comes to reducing fractures. Calcium and vitamin D is not a security blanket. Probably doesn't even work, according to this trial. If you think it works, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with giving a little bit of calcium and vitamin D, and certainly people who are very deficient, maybe there's some benefit there. But this is not how you should be spending your time. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed this trial as much as I did. I love a trial that tells me I don't need to do something that I already thought was probably low value. So thank you to the investigators for performing this ancillary study. Thank you for funding this enormous trial. And thank you to all of you for listening. If you hear this, please come say hi if you see me at ACR. I will be around and about, and I always love to meet people who are listening to the podcast. That's it for this week. Enjoy ACR, and have a great day. 